Uh, how about we all stand? And we are going to read a little passage of scripture out of the Gospel of John. So why don't you open your Bibles to the Gospel of John while you're standing. We've been in this series going through the Gospel of John and uh, making our way through this verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's kind of what we do as a church is we... Uh, we come together and we, uh, we, we want to hear a word from what God has to say. And we like to say this as well, that as a church, um, though Sunday morning is an important part, it's not the sum total of who we are. Like uh, as God renews us and restores us and recalibrates our attention, our affection, uh, our aim is to go back into this world and to just be a light, to be a source of, of hope and help to everybody that we meet. I mean, bottom line is, is, especially the past couple of days, we've seen so much suffering, a lot of pain, even in our own neighborhood, our own uh, area where we live, uh, lots of crazy stuff happening. And so it's a way for us to have our eyes open, like going back into the world with our eyes wide open and to be a, a part of what God is all about in this world. Um, so with that being said, I'm going to read a little passage of scripture, but one, two, actually two more quick things before we even read it. Uh, and sometimes I do this, these are like cheap little free freebies for you. Um, I was reminded this morning that we are looking for some helpers to help out with our fourth through sixth grade class. I'm specifically thinking of you men that are involved with our men's group. So if you are interested in looking for an opportunity to teach young people around ages fourth grade through sixth grade, we are regularly every Sunday morning, we have a class that meets back um, there. If we have enough people, then we can kind of create a good rotation. It doesn't have to be a young guy. It could be anybody, anybody that just wants to be able to uh, feed the next generation the, the love of Jesus. We're just looking for some people. So if you are interested in that, come talk to me immediately afterwards. And it doesn't even have to be a dude. It can be anybody, a gal, anybody. We just, we just want people that are open to wanting to help and feed the next generation. So come talk to me afterwards. I'll get you connected with the right people. And then lastly, a quick question for you men. How many of you men have actually been to or are regularly going to our, our men's group that meets on Wednesday night? Raise your hand. I want to see y'all. Okay. There's a lot of you that don't have your hand raised. So there's a lot of you that do, which is awesome. But there's a lot of you that don't. I want to personally invite you guys. Uh, this coming Wednesday, we have our men's group that is meeting. If you don't know anything about it, go ahead and take out your phone, scan that code. Again, that takes you to the planning center, which is that seems to be a common theme that Jesus is just like constantly knocking on the door of your heart saying, download the app, be part of this, <laughs> learn, grow. Uh, no, but seriously, uh, this Wednesday is our men's group. Uh, we do this every other Wednesday night. We'd love to have you be part of that. We're going through the book of James. It's an opportunity to uh, really... Uh, engage our hearts, our minds, become known by people, be, be, become, become those people that are able to know other people, uh, ultimately become men of faith, virtue, and courage. So my hope would be I'd love to invite you. If you are a dude right now that has been coming to this church for any length of time, God bless you, and you don't know anybody, you're not known, no, you don't have any forms of connections or relationships with other dudes, uh, and uh, man, I want to personally invite you. Definitely come on out. Be part of this coming Wednesday. We start at 730. Can't wait to see you there. All right, let's read uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I'm going to pick it up at verse 22, going on to ver down to verse 30, and then I'm going to stop, I'm going to pray, and we're just going to get to work. Gospel writer says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples w went into the Judean countryside, and he, he remained there with them and was baptizing. Uh, later on in John chapter 4, it tells us that Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Verse 23, John was also baptizing in Aenon near Salem because water is plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet but been put in prison. Verse 25, 
Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, it's Jesus, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's been given to him by heaven. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness, and I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray, and you all grab a seat. Jesus, right now, uh, we invite you to illuminate, to open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds, uh, our imaginations to who you are, to what you're inviting us into. God, that we would be a part of your work on this planet, in this city, on the Central Coast, in the lives of people that need hope and life. So empower us to be able to be all of that. And we pray these things this morning. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all grab a seat. So we've been in this series right now, and I want to just jump into this by pointing out just a couple quick observations, and we'll get in kind of the, uh, the meat and potatoes of all of this. Uh, quick, simple observation. Number one is that John the Apostle, who wrote this book, uh, he's been talk- taking the reader, you and I, uh, through kind of this uh, storied journey, showing that Jesus ultimately fulfills and surpasses everything that Judaism was all about. That's, that's the big kind of idea, the big E on the I chart that John is kind of taking us through in this journey. So, for example, uh, John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to give you a quick little synopsis if you've not been with us for, you know, past month or so, let's say, for example, if you're a student. So, from John chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 11, uh, providing, Jesus provides this new wine, uh, which ultimately is this idea of joy that vastly surpasses all of that that comes through Judaism. We see that Jesus, you know, creates his first miracle by turning water into wine. Second, we see in John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25, says that Jesus ultimately replaces the temple. Uh, Jesus is setting himself up as being one that's actually greater than the very temple itself, this massive structure. that The, the big aim of the structure was to go to the temple, to bring your sacrifices, and then have an assurance that you are, your sins have been forgiven by God. So what Jesus, in essence, is saying, and John taking us through this journey, is that Jesus is actually even greater than the temple itself. In other words, that Jesus himself makes these claims to actually take away our sin, to forgive us, to wash us, to cleanse us, which implies, obviously, we, we have a debt that is owed. There's something not quite right with the, the status of who we are as human beings that needs to be set right, that Jesus claims to be the one to actually make it right. Uh, thirdly, we see in John chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 21, that Jesus ultimately fulfills this image of the snake in the wilderness that was lifted up. Again, John attaches the life of Jesus to this ancient historical narrative of the Jews and takes us all the way back to the book of Exodus where Moses uh, raises up this big serpent in the wilderness. The people of Israel look at it. They get uh, rescued and saved or healed. Uh, in this little dialogue that Jesus has with this guy by the name of Nicodemus, he describes and kind of uh, sets himself up as the, as the one that's going to be cursed that will ultimately remove the, uh, the diseases, the brokenness, the, the, our need for healing, Jesus says, is all found in me. Uh, and then lastly, we see that Jesus, in this particular story that we're going to be looking at here, is really surpassing John the Baptist by way of his uh, purification. That Jesus is promising to bring something of purification that's beyond anything that John could ever promise or hope to bring. 
So this is kind of the big major themes that we see with regard to uh, Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. Can someone grab me some water real quick? Um, thank you. Little bottle. Um, that, that Jesus is actually greater than all of these. Oh, you got one? No? I don't want to drink. Oh, thank you. I'm kind of a germaphobe, too. Was that open? Oh, it's closed. It's all good. All right. Sorry. You guys are learning a little bit about me. Yes, I am germaphobic. And if you give, yeah. yeah I, I'll pass on drinking water that's been already drunk from. Hold on. There we go. I'm going to be one of those guys right now that's going to take a sip of water. All right. So with that being said, so John wants to bring us into the story of Jesus and show us that Jesus actually surpasses all of these things, which is a, a pretty remarkable claim, that Jesus uh, claims to be this one that brings joy, to be this one that brings forgiveness, bring healing, bring purification. All of this is sort of wrapped up in the person of Jesus. Now, think about it this way. Who else on planet Earth fits that bill? Like, where else do you go to find that total package of what we would call salvation, like nowhere else. Jesus is the one that has is make and takes the claim upon himself that he alone brings all of this to all human beings that are in desperate need of it. The second big observation is that we see that John, the baptizer, and again, I've guys been with us for any length of time, you know that this is, can get a little bit confusing because you got John, the author of this book, his name's John the Apostle, John the Apostle. And then you got John, John the Baptizer. This is another character in the story. He is the one that we're, we just read about. So John the Baptizer, so what we see with regard to him, is that he's ultimately confronted. What, what I find really fascinating about the story, um, we see the human struggle that he is facing in terms of coming face-to-face with his own limitations and his own identity. Um, and we see that when he's brought to his awareness that Jesus himself, now what we see are his disciples, so John has these followers or these students, they come to John and they basically make this statement, um, kind of a threefold statement. They say, he who was with you across the Jordan, uh, whom you bore witness to. In other words, like John, you platformed Jesus. You gave him a platform. You gave him a spotlight. You're the one that called him out, said you are the son of God that takes away this in the world. And then they go on to say that he's baptizing. In other words, He's basically doing the same thing that you and I are doing. And on top of that, they also kind of close it up with this little segment, segment right here. And, uh, I think it's like in verse uh, 28. Uh, it goes on to say that all people are going to him. So can, you, can you feel the, the jealousy that's just seething out of them right there in this moment? They're like, John. They're filled with anxiety. They are, not, they are, not anx- they're, they're just the, the exact opposite of a non-anxious presence. right? They're just freaking out. They're like, look, everything that we gave our attention and our time and our money and our talent, everything too is being taken away from us. We are losing it all. John, do you not feel this anxiety, right? And uh, John responds, but not in the way that they are proposing. Uh, What I find fascinating is that these students of his, they're tainted by grievance and jealousy and offense. And they attempt to bring John into the same toxic world. Why? Uh, You know, they say misery loves company. Missouri loves company. But through their voices, John follows an entirely different path of trust, contentment, um, death to ego, right? Dies to himself, and then ultimately joy. That's what I find fascinating about this entire segment that we just read. Um, John makes a statement. Just, uh, I'll read it to you, and this will be kind of a springboard to get us into the remainder of the text that we'll take a look at the rest of our time here this morning. Uh, take a look at verse 29 again. He says, 
Um, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Then he says this little phrase, Therefore, because of all of this, this joy of mine is now complete. This joy of mine is now complete. Think about that. And think about when was the last time you could actually say of your life, my joy has been complete, fulfilled, satisfied, satiated. When was the last time you found yourself in a state where it's like, man, that joy is just oozing out of me. It's just there. I can't, I can't run from it. I can't deny it. It's just there. And more importantly, probably, uh, like, what were the circumstances that created that? And I want, I want to make even a final, like, clarification between joy and happiness. Happiness is oftentimes dependent upon uh, happenstance or circumstances. So joy is kind of this deeper-rooted, like, uh, grounded-type uh, emotional status that's not necessarily even overflowing with happiness, but it's, it's more of a, a calm resolve that I have something that a lot of people just simply don't have. It's just a very, very valuable reality. And then, but on, on top of that, how long did it last? Like, how long does it last? What was the shelf life of it? A couple hours, a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months. John makes a statement that's pretty profound. He says, again, very clearly, I'll read it again. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. How? Why did John, and how is John able to communicate that or state, state that? Like, what we see in the text here, there's some really fascinating clues, I think, that John the Apostle, the writer, tells us and points out to us with regard to the life of John the Beloved, or John the, or John the, sorry, John the Baptizer, and how he interacts or relates or responds to these circumstances that are trying to drag him down. Again, like I said, misery loves company. So to be around people that are constantly frustrated and upset or discontented, have you ever met those people? Maybe, maybe you are that person today. Um, my invitation to you, my hope for you, would be that you would listen to kind of some of these lessons that John the Baptizer learned and observed and practiced. And that you yourself would uh, begin to learn those things and practice them yourself. It's like a muscle. Joy is something that God, in fact, if you want to write something like this down, God is serious about your joy. Again, some of this kind of boils down to how we think about God. Some of us think about God as sort of a cosmic killjoy. His aim is actually take away your joy, to make your life miserable. He's just always frustrated with you. He's never happy with you. Nothing you do can ever make him happy. He's just that cantankerous old man in the sky that is always frustrated. That's how we oftentimes are sold this concept of who God is. Now, again, if you believe in propaganda, and you should, or misinformation, and you should, or fake news, and you should, you should know that there's a propagandist, that Satan would, this other agent in the universe that's out to soil and destroy God's good name, is always... Uh, angling for an opportunity to cause us to think falsely about who God is. But what we see always and over and over again, a constant repeat, is that God is really actually very serious about your joy. Some of us, we don't really believe that. My invitation to you would be to check whatever it is that you think you know about God at the door and allow the scripture to paint a fresh imagination of who God is. Really what I'm asking you to do is to suspend what you think or what you feel about God and let whatever that is to be replaced with what God says about himself and for you to believe that, to trust that. 
to let your heart be shaped by this reality. So, for example, John chapter 3, verse 29 says this, this joy of mine is now complete. Again, John makes a statement. Uh, later on in John chapter 15, verse 11, it says this, these things I've spoken, this is Jesus speaking. He says that my joy might be in you and that your joy might be complete. So Jesus himself makes a statement to his disciples, like I've communicated some things to you. I want you to believe. I want you to imbibe. I want you to make part of your life or the landscape of your reality. And as you do that, I want my joy, my hope for you as a savior for all mankind is that your joy in me might be complete. John 17, verse 13, Jesus in his famous prayer, he says, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus' aim is to connect us with the source of everlasting joy, God himself. Again, in order to get there, sometimes we have to face and confront some things that are joy killers or joy thieves. These are like sin. These are own, our own rebellious ways. These are our uh, desire to somehow claim uh, entitlement over certain things or have certain expectations of God that we're going to live according to our own ways. All of those things promise us joy, but just like Adam and Eve in the garden, they always end in a place of despair and brokenness. So with that being said, what I want to do is I want to take a look at basically some of the principles that John really kind of orients his life around or frames his life around these principles. We'll just take a look at three of them. There's probably a handful more that you can kind of pull out of the text, but I just want to look at three of them. Number one, we, we're just, I'll go through all of them and read them, and then we'll kind of circle back and go through each one of them. So everything comes from God. It's the first thing that John exemplifies. Number two, he frames his life around this idea that humans are not the king. And then thirdly, true joy is found in the king, and we'll take a look at some of these each by uh, themselves. So number one, let's take a look at everything comes from God. Everything comes from God. Take a look at verse 27 again. John answered. Again, these are, he's responding to the people that are filled with discontentment, frustration, jealousy. They're just in this toxic mindset right now. And they're looking at their landscape and being like, man, we had such a great ministry at one point, but now look at our ministry. It's not what it could have been or should have been or should be because look at how much time and energy that we've been giving into this. And now we're in danger or everything that we've given ourselves to is, in, is being threatened to be lost over to this guy, Jesus. That's what's happening. Jesus is drawing more crowds. I mean, it boils down to this. Jesus's ministry, quote unquote, is more successful, if you would, you know, in air quotes, than what John was. And they're feeling the reality of this. But again, John isn't playing to this. And what I love about this as well is that applying these principles or thinking about these principles or letting them kind of shape your life they actually liberate you. They free you. They become a pathway for your freedom so that you don't, you as a human being, don't have to consistently be sucked into this vortex of toxic thought, bad mood, constant discontentment. Have you met those people? Just everything frustrates them. Sometimes they wear it on their face. Sometimes they wear it beneath their face, right? They can have a smile, and those are the, kind of the worst kind, actually, because... They, they look happy, but they're really not happy. They're just always frustrated. Um, and John's like, I'm not going to have anything that's going to lead towards that direction. And John makes a statement that he says, a person cannot receive one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. This is John's way of basically saying everything that I have comes from God. God gave me this ministry. John had this very successful ministry. He was baptizing lots of people. 
hundreds, if not thousands upon thousands of people. Uh, a lot of scholars would describe this as sort of like a counter-temple movement, that John's doing the work of Yahweh God out in the wilderness, not in connection with the temple itself. Again, if you were around first century Jerusalem, you would realize that everything Judaism was basically uh, intricately bound to the temple, which meant you, you had a, you know, uh, a priest that you would go to or a rabbi that you were connected with. Uh, they were connected to sort of this, this system that was there. John basically takes the work that he's uh, connected himself to way outside, out to the region of the wilderness, and he's baptizing people. And again, it's kind of raised the question, what's he doing? Why is he doing that? We're not going to get necessarily go too in-depth into all this. But it seems like what John is basically inviting people into is saying, let's, as God's people, live as renewed people of the covenant with Yahweh God by getting baptized. This is probably John's way of kind of reenacting this idea of the people of Israel coming from the wilderness into the promised land. It's kind of like John saying, look, let's get out of the wilderness of our lives back into the covenantal promises that God gives us so that we can really truly live the life that God invites us to live. John had this incredibly successful ministry. It was not without its own forms of um, problems that were kind of raised. Um, John, if you're familiar with his life, he ends up kind of being this martyr. He literally ends up dead uh, at the hands of this guy by the name of Herod. Uh, Literally, it gets in horrible, dramatic form. His head is actually brought out on a platter. Like, they literally behead him bring him out at a, as a party favor, uh, and this is, the, this is the great prophet. Uh, but what we see here at this particular juncture of his life, we're told by John that he has not yet been arrested. So all of this was taking place prior to all this. But what John wants everyone to hear and know that is a part of his life, that everything comes from God. Everything comes from God. Every gift that he has comes from God. But there's a second part to this is that sometimes everything that we have can also be taken away. And this is kind of the, the odd reversal that we live, especially in the Western world, in which we kind of have this idea of growth and development and expansion and tearing down our barns and building bigger barns. And, and the way towards real life is continual expansion of our portfolio, continual expansion of our household, continual expansion of buying a new car, buying a new television, not just one television set would be fine. We need six of them in our house. We need, you know, 16 additions to our house. We need a new car, always a new updated car. There's this idea, this mindset in our world today that says, if that's not happening to you, something's wrong. Maybe you've fallen out of favor with God. Maybe you're not working hard enough. Maybe you're not, your hustle is not what it should be. Get your hustle on. Keep working harder. And therefore, you will expand your life and become better. But what John's saying is that everything I have is a gift from God. And in some cases, it can be taken away. How, how do you have a posture like John without becoming toxic or embittered or angry? Because that's not what happened with John. He himself tells you the state that he's in. My joy is complete. How is it possible? You're losing everything. <laughs> and this taps you into this reality, this base note, that every Christian from the very beginning has known. It's this great secret. Because our life, at its very core, is not based upon what we own, what we possess, what we have, what we've discovered, what we've earned, what we've merited. It's based upon the gift and the kindness and the goodness of God. And John recognizes this. We live in a universe that ultimately belongs to another. We are tenants or renters, not owners. We're stewards, not the supreme lord. To the degree that we understand this, 
misunderstand this, we will find either a sense of joy and delight and freedom, or we will continually find ourselves married to anxiety, frustration, futility. Paul the Apostle would later say this in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him alone be glory forever and ever. This is Paul's way of basically saying everything that Yahweh God has, God actually gives life to me. And I am a partaker of this. God is good. God loves me. He's for me. He's with me. Now, the second thing we see with regard to the life of John is he also wants to bring us into this next principle that he describes. And I'm just kind of terming it this way, that humans are not the king, but they play a significant support role. Take a look at verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. This is John's way of basically saying, I'm I'm not the king. The word Christ, we've looked at this many other occasions, but the word king or Christ literally just means king, This the anointed one, anointed one for a particular purpose. And here's John basically clearly identifying, look, you might think that I am the Christ, but I'm not the Christ. My, my job is to point out who the Christ is, which is what he did when he says, you know, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was John's way of basically identifying the Christ. But I think it's also important to note that in this negative context, he's basically saying, I'm not the king. I'm not that guy. This also leads us to kind of a secondary thing that helps us to understand our joy. Let me put it this way. If life was consistent of you maintaining and protecting your position, your identity, then everything in your life is oriented and, and wired so that you keep that. Do you realize how exhausting that is? So, for example, if you had a you know, double life, you know, in other words... You come to church, you're one person, and out in the general public or at home or in your family, you're an entirely different person. Let's say, for example, that that dual sense of who you are has not been known. In other words, you have a second life that nobody else knows about. At some point, they, you know, people that have lived in those places like that before, they, they describe at some point how exhausting it is because you, you wire your life, like the rebar of your life, if you would, is all based upon lies. And at some point, those wires kind of get crossed, and you, it's hard at some point to keep track of who you told what to, and that gets exhausting. But what, what would happen if you had not two lives or three lives or ten lives or different identities, but one life? What if that one heart that you have that's attached to that one life had one driving desire? We would call that purity of heart. Simplicity. Some would look at that and be like, man, it's like just a world of incredible extreme limitations. Actually, those limitations become the pathway to incredible freedom. Because your heart, your passion, your longing, your desire, like John, is singularly focused upon Jesus. He's the king. I'm not the king. What that means is that John does not have to live under this facade of projecting himself to his, his followers, right? His posse, his people, his entourage is being, I'm the king. Everybody support me. Everybody lift me up. Everybody make sure you protect my opinions that are circulating around the interweb, that you keep the public opinion proper about me because I'm the king. John's saying the exact opposite. I'm not the king. Therefore, that gives him freedom to say, my job is to really point to the king, to orient my life and everything that I do and everything that I say and all that I'm about is about Jesus. And what we see with regard to this is that he has a significant role. If you go back to the book of Genesis, so Genesis chapter 1, what you find is that God actually creates the world. 
And God is uh, depicted as this king, this kingly figure that creates all things, the entire cosmos. All that is seen, all that is unseen. And God selects human beings to basically be these agents that are like chief stewards. They operate on his behalf. If you want to think of it this way, like they are the head of the Dendermithon branch, right? They are the chief masters in charge of everything. They have a very significant role, though they are themselves not Yahweh God. Which means that everything they're supposed to do in order to flourish or to enter into all that God has for them uh, needs to be run past the king. We would call that wisdom. Gaining wisdom. God, what do you want to do in this situation? How do you want us to act with this particular situation? How do you want us to treat the ground over here? And how do you want us to treat nature and uh, other human beings over here? And they would be consistently being fed wisdom and information from God that would then help them in this decision-making process of saying yes to God, to flourish, to grow, to enter into all that God has, what we would call joy. But we know that it's not the story because what ends up happening is Adam and Eve basically are sold a lie, again, back to the propaganda agent, and he is constantly telling them, look, I think God's actually withholding something from you, and that something is actually right there in that tree in the middle of the garden that looks absolutely delicious. Eat the fruit, the one tree that God says don't eat of the fruit of that tree. And again, we can get into a whole discussion as to, well, why did God put a tree in there? He said, don't eat the fruit. Again, I'm not going to go down that path right now. Talk to me afterwards. I'm happy to give you my two cents, but there you go. I'm going to tell you right now it's free. You're going to get what you pay for. But the point that I would make is this, is that God's whole aim is that there's, there's restrictions or limitations. I'm saying that if you follow my pathway, it will lead to life. But at the same time, if you set yourself up to be king, in other words, you are the one who's making all these decisions based upon your proper understanding, your own understanding, your own perceptions of how the world is wired, you will find yourself in a place of brokenness. The evil one, the Bible describes, is constantly going around. He's like I mentioned earlier, this propaganda agent that's always lying to us as human beings, telling us that God has kind of kept something from you. God's aim is out to destroy your life or to make you joyless or to restrict or restrain certain things from you. And again, we live in a world today that is constantly telling us, just tap into whatever your desires are. Don't let anything stop you from attaining your desires. We live in a post-sexual revolution world that basically said, in a nutshell, that any form of limitations or restrictions upon who you have sex with, how often you have sex, is actually a destruction of your freedom. True path of freedom is actually found in expressing your sexuality in any way, shape, or form that you want. Which, there's all sorts of writings today, in our world today, even written by non-Christians, secular agents and authors and third-wave feminists that are basically looking at the whole entire sexual revolution and basically making these declarations that the sexual revolution actually was a failed revolution for women, very successful for men, but very much of a failure for women. Because women have been brought into the sexual revolution, being promised and told, freedom for you is having sex with whoever it is you want, but what they're discovering is at what cost. Women pay the price. Men end up too as well, because men do so in a different form. They become dehumanized. Women become abused and objectified. But the point that I would make is this, is that we live in this world that basically promises us, take whatever it is you want. If it's something that promises you satisfaction, then you deserve it. You have access to it. 
taken, again, because we live in a world that's even more and more bringing things to accessibility to our fingertips, we, just because it's there doesn't mean it's right or that it will actually lead us to a point of flourishing. Does that make sense? Just because we technologically have the ability as a society now to craft things or to create things or make them available to us does not promise us this, what John describes as completion of joy. It might be temporary happiness, but that wades, fades, goes away, and at some point we find ourselves with this deeper sense of despair, and sevenfold demons come in and live in the residency of our own heart, and we suffer seven times more than we ever did before. That's the state of our world today. The evil one comes in, he plays upon our discontentments. He dictates to us oftentimes that we deserve more, we deserve better. This was his tactic with Adam and Eve. So what I've actually observed in the lives of people over and over and over again, been doing ministry for a long time and working up front and close and personal with people for a long time. And I've seen these various types of traits that oftentimes happen. People start out in this relationship with, with God and they discover the freedom that God gives. And, and there's a joy, there's a base note of joy that's there that's been indescribable. But over time, you add to that life and experience and suffering and hardships and pain and sometimes uh, peeling back the layers of misinformation that we're fed about God. So, for example, some people have been misfed uh, information that if you follow Jesus, your life is going to be great. God's going to take away all the sorrow and suffering. It's going to be amazing. You begin to follow Jesus and actually begin to realize it's actually really hard. And it's tough. And there's choices and decisions that you are going to make that are going to lead to maybe even more suffering or compounded forms of suffering. There's things that you're going to realize are maybe off limits to you. I just had a really good friend of mine good conversation with a really good friend of mine who uh, is off doing incredible work for Jesus. Ever since he's ever remembered, he's always been a same-sex attracted dude. Always. His entire life. I asked him one time, like, you've never had a desire for a woman? He goes, no, never. My whole entire life, I've always been same-sex attracted. And he's like, you know what? I realize in my celibate state, I'm making a major sacrifice. I'm saying no to having sexual intimacy with another human being. But Jesus is so much more better. And the life that he's called me to actually gives me greater satisfaction and fulfillment than anything I've ever had in my entire life. The things that he is able to do for the kingdom of God has brought him something that is inexplainable. But again, our culture is constantly feeding us this narrative and saying, no one should ever take anything away from you. But this is where we have to wrestle with the reality that what Jesus, if he truly is king, we should never say no one because Jesus is a someone. And if he is the king over all things, there's going to be occasions where he's going to say, that's off limits to you. Don't take that fruit. It does look delicious. It does promise tastiness. It does look life-giving. But as the king, as the creator, as the one who has all authority in his hand, I'm telling you, it will actually be a path of darkness and despair and destruction. And so as we take those steps of saying yes to him, he leads us into a different path that the rest of the world will look at and just be like, that's ridiculous. Of course, they've been saying that from the very beginning. Every person that followed Jesus was always mocked as, why are you doing this? It doesn't make any sense to follow Jesus. And you're right. It does not make any worldly sense to follow Jesus. Because everything about following Jesus looks like a subtraction of joy. But actually... It's a multiplication of joy. 
in this life, but really, ultimately, in the life to come. So, for example, what I've discovered is that people that begin to follow this train of thought, they move from a place of enchantment, that Jesus is everything, to a state of disenchantment. That joy can sometimes decay into frustration. That love can degenerate into a form of disdain. And I've watched this happen. That people's hearts grow cold and frustrated and angry. And you follow it upstream. You begin to dissect it. You kind of reverse engineer and ask the questions, how did this happen? I promise you, somewhere within the mixture of that, what you'll find is a desire for something that was affixed to a hope that says, that will bring me life, but it was withheld from me. And then it mutates. Then it degenerates. Then it breaks down. And what John discovered is that humans are not the king, but they play a significant support role. To the degree that you understand this and live according to this, this will really ultimately set you in a trajectory of your life of either finding greater depths of joy because you realize you don't have to be in control of everything. Jesus is. Your job is to be a support role, whatever it is that he's calling you to. Or you will be like, I'm in control of everything. My joy is 100% dependent upon me, and I must take, I must grab, because I never know when there's not going to be enough to go around. So if it's there now, I will take it for myself, because that's how human beings operate in their worst state. And we're all capable of that, every one of us. And then lastly, let me, let me read a couple passages that I think that would underscore this before I move to the very last one. So, for example, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says this, Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So I love the writer of Hebrews. He basically makes his point. He's like, look, we're, we're all tempted to, to love money, like to, to want more money. I mean, we look at money as kind of this means that will provide security and comfort and, you know, being able to buy whatever it is that we want to kind of uh, appease our soul and the aches that we oftentimes have. But his whole point is like, don't, don't let the love of money be something that controls you. Instead, be content with what God's given you because he says, God will never leave you nor forsake you. Or, for example, Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And then he said to them, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his own possessions. Again, it goes very contrary to everything that we're taught and told within our capitalistic society. The more you have, the more life you're going to have. There's silly bumper sticker from some of you might even remember, but probably many of you don't because you weren't alive back then. But there was this bumper sticker back in the 80s, I think it was, 90s, something like that. It says, he who dies with the most toys. At least I grew up in Huntington Beach. So it was like, this was all around there. Everybody was driving their like Audis to the beach. And, you know, you know what I'm saying? Get the, get the idea. He who dies with the most toys wins. And then Christians, because they always like capitalize on cheap, like cultural ideas. And they're like, he who dies with the most toys wins, dot, 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 nothing. So creative, huh? But the point that I would make is this. <laughs> These are the ideas that we're taught to believe. And for example, First Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, he says, this Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. But if we have food and clothing with these, let us be content. That word again, content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into senselessness, and harmful desires, and plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Through this craving that some have wandered from their own faith. So there are these desires that will take us away from what God has, and they stain 
our souls. But John, again, discovers, based upon this food chain, God is at the top. He is the king over all. I'm not. My job is very significant. I have a significant role to play, which means you as a human being, you're not just like doomed to a life of insignificance. No, you have an incredible life. My encouragement to you would tap into all that potential that you have. It's the very opposite of saying, just die and be a nobody on some sort of cosmic scene where God is all in. No, God, for whatever reason, has chosen to partner with human beings to be a part of his purposes on this planet. You have incredible value, incredible potential. My hope would be that you discover it all, but in the proper format and in the proper alignment that God is king over all things. Lastly, we see that John the baptizer also discovered that true joy is ultimately found in the king. True joy is found in the king. Listen to how he words this. And again, verse 29 uh, is, is kind of cryptic, and I just want to unpack it real quickly and hopefully make some sense. So he says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. I, I have no idea why he uses language like this, but we're, we're going to unpack it because it's given to us, and our job is to not critique it or make, you know, laugh at it or think it's kind of odd or weird, but to try to make sense of it. So when he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, who's he talking about? The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Who's the bridegroom? Jesus, right? All right, just FYI, Sunday, Sunday school answer. If you ever answer Jesus, majority of the time it's always going to be correct. So just say Jesus, whatever we say. Jesus, Jesus, right. So I think you're right. Jesus is the bridegroom. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So Jesus has the bride. Uh, then he goes on and says, the friend of the bridegroom. So if Jesus is the bridegroom, who's the friend of the bridegroom? John. So he says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices gladly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. There's three verbs that John uses here. Hopefully, you caught them. Number one, he says, standing, listening, and rejoicing. Standing. He who stands. I think of this idea of proximity. Friendship involves proximity. You can have friends that are far away. You can just keep in contact with them through FaceTime. And just like I have friends all around the world that I keep in contact with on a regular basis. But there's something about being proximate to someone, close to them, near them, standing near them. This is the image that John is saying. I, I stand near Jesus. I want to be near him. Then he goes on to say, listening to his voice. This is the opposite of closing your ears, stopping up your ears, saying, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then he goes on to say, rejoicing as opposed to despairing. For some of us, the idea of being in the presence of God is terrifying. Have you ever thought about that? Why is that? Why does the presence of God for some of us terrify you? If God showed up right here, right now, what would your response be? This is a good thing to really think about, too, by the way. Because if it is terror, then that has more of a reflection upon sometimes of the posture of our heart, the state of our heart. But here's the beauty of Jesus, is that even though he is described as this consuming fire, that he has eyes of fire that pierces through who we truly are. Like, everything about the presence of God on one level should be terrifying. But on another level, it just draws us in because it's, it's full of goodness and beauty and truth. And John says, ultimately, my joy, my rejoicing is found in the king. And I want to finish with this quote. C.S. Lewis, I've read this before, but I think it's just worthwhile reading again. Uh, in Mere Christianity, he makes a statement with regard to our identity. He says this, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body. In the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. 
Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Live for yourself. This is very careful, uh, crucial. Listen to this very carefully. Live for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Jesus, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Do you believe that? Everything in our culture says no one else holds the answer for you except you. And again, we use these cultural terminology like live for your authentic self. And I think I understand what most are saying with regard to that. And if what you mean by your authentic self is you alone have a project ahead of you and you are the only author of this entire thing, you figure it out on your own. I would suggest to you, not only is that extremely exhausting, it will also lead you down this path of what C.S. Lewis describes. A path of hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and ultimately decay. But conversely, if you look at your authentic self as being an expression of the glorious God who loves you and made you in his image, you will not only find life eternally from God, but you will also find the fullness of your authentic self. You get that tossed in as a bonus. And that's beautiful. And I was thinking about this in closing, that if Jesus truly is the all-glorious one, the one who is supreme over all things, like John the Apostle wants us to believe, wouldn't it make sense, like John the Baptizer, to relinquish everything to him? Everything. Every sin that stains our soul. It's the thing I've written down a couple days ago. Every toxic emotion that we hold on to and coddle. Every grievance, every offense, every entitlement, every disappointment that we coddle like a sacred ring of power. Every sexual impulse and or identity. Every narrative that exalts our ego to hero status. Every good gift that gets exalted to a godlike level. And 10,000 comforts that we entrust ourselves to in order to satiate our infinity-sized soul. Wouldn't it make sense to lay all that down at the feet of the one who owns and possesses and is superior over all of it? That's a big claim, but that's the claim of the Scripture. You can fight it. You can hate it. You can resist it. You can balk against it. You can call it ridiculous. It doesn't matter. The burden is on you to disprove it then. Or we are invited to fully believe it and entirely trust our lives over to this. And in doing so, not only discover eternal life, but joy like we've never had before. Joy that's complete. Let's all stand. I don't pray for us. And I want to invite you into this because here's what's cool about the gospel. It's a gospel that Jesus proclaims, this good news that he comes and does something for us on our behalf that we don't have the ability or the merit to accomplish or create, that he does something for us that we could never do for ourselves. He gives us something in replacement of our lives. The Bible is very clear that we all have been part of this corrupted story where we have believed a false report. The false report is that you're amazing on your own. You don't need anybody telling you what to do. You're incredible. And what ends up happening is we bring corruption into ourselves, and through us, we become these uh, unleashers of corruption in the lives of other people. Have you ever noticed that? We leech corruption. <laughs> we le- It just comes out of us. We don't mean to. We don't want to. 
I've been following Jesus for almost like, I don't even know how long, a long time. But, and I'm still, I still marvel at how much damage and pain I can unleash in other people's lives. I've been doing this for a long time. But I also realize that that's not all of me. That God gives me life in the place of my death and the brokenness that I oftentimes contribute to. That's the good news. That God takes upon himself the death, corruption, destruction that we have created and that we've unleashed and gives us life in place. My invitation to you is that wherever you're at, if you're not a Christian here today, that you would trust Jesus, that you would see him as the one that loves you and has given himself to you, and step into that. If you have questions about what that looks like and how to do that, I'm happy to, I'll be up here afterwards. We'll have some other people up here afterwards to pray with you and pray for you. I'd love to help you walk through that process. If you're here this morning, you are a Christian, my hope would be that this would be another heavy reminder that we're so loved by this God that's taken upon himself the consequences that we've incurred in planet, in this planet, in our lives, on this earth. So I want to pray over us right now, and then we will scatter. So Jesus, right now, thank you for your love. Empower us, strengthen us to be all that you invite us to be. And God, I pray for those here this morning that might not know you, that you would open up their hearts, that you would draw them near to yourself, that you would show them this path of life and joy and salvation and goodness that you alone offer. And God, would you just move and work as we step out of this building into this world to become a part of this this kingdom that you are expanding, that we would be a a voice of of hope, that we would be hands of love and kindness and goodness to people around us that are just going through tough times. And so, Jesus, help us to be all that you were on this planet. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. And may the grace, mercy, and peace from the Trinity God be yours.